When I first moved here to Cincinnati, uh, to the area, uh, I, I got a new cell phone number, and uh, apparently the number used to belong to a, a business or a former business in the town of Hamilton, and I would continue to get calls for this business, and when I would call my friends from Atlanta, where I'm from, it would ring up as Hamilton, which gave, and my, I got the nickname Hamilton or Hammy for short. So it's, it's sort of good to be back home here in Butler County. Even though, uh, so um, it is a privilege to be here. And we're going to spend, uh, Chad and I are, are kind of swapping pulpits for a, uh, a couple of weeks. Uh, I, I will preach uh, this week. Um, and then uh, your bulletin says next week inevitable joy, and, and that joy is inevitable because Chad will be preaching on that next week. And then I will come back and preach uh, again. Uh, I'll be preaching at a, a, uh, a two-week series, uh, so to speak, on Psalm 139. We'll look at the first half of it this morning and then the second half uh, on August 22nd. So let me begin by reading uh, verses 1 through 12 of uh, Psalm 139. Hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, and darkness is as light with you. This is the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm. So I hold in my hand a baseball that uh, is of uh, minor historical significance. Um, I have had this baseball ever since I was 12 years old. Uh, the date on it says um, May the 5th, 1976. And the writing, which is my handwriting, says its significance that this is the ball that I hit for my first home run in a Little League baseball game. And I got to tell you, I remember that home run like it was yesterday. Uh, when I hit the ball to dead center, the ball, I didn't even know for sure it was a home run because the ball hit the top rail of this chain link fence and bounced over. And I thought it might be ruled a ground rule double. And in fact, if I had hit the ball even a half inch shorter than it had gone, it would have bounced back into the field as a, a, a live ball. But I as I was approaching first, I looked at the umpire, and he turned around and smiled at me and did like this, which meant home run, keep running. And so now I'm 
taking that victorious trot to second base and around the bases. I can see out of the corner of my eye that my teammates are pouring out of the dugout to wait for me at home plate. And so then I go from second base to third base. And as I'm approaching third base, something seems very out of the ordinary. Our third base coach was not smiling. He had a very serious look on his face. Our third base coach was not even cheering. Uh, he, he didn't seem excited. Our third base coach was coaching. And I kept hearing him say over and over again in a very firm but gentle voice, touch every base, touch every base, touch every base. Now, in reality, the, the third base coach was my dad. And he was, I'm sure, very excited about me hitting my first home run, but he understood the euphoria that a 12-year-old boy can get caught up in in hitting his first home run, and he knew that hitting a ball over the fence doesn't automatically put a run up on the scoreboard because you've got to <clears throat> touch every base. And in fact, just last month, my dad and I were talking about that game so many decades ago, and he told me that the reason that he was urging me to touch every base is because when he was a kid and he hit his first home run, there was a runner on first base already, and that runner didn't touch second base. He was called out. My dad, my dad had to stay at first base, being credited with a single when he hit the ball over the fence. So it was kind of a downer to hit his first home run. Um, so to return to that game, uh, when I hit my first home run, later in the same game, a player for the other team hit a triple. And as he rounded first base, guess what he did not do? He didn't touch first base. Guess who saw it? Uh, my dad saw it, and so did the umpire. And so my dad gets word to us in the field to throw the ball to first base, which we do. The, runner, the, the first baseman steps on the bag, and the umpire calls the runner standing on third base out. And we won that game by one run. Details matter. Uh, my dad was very well acquainted with what a typical 12-year-old boy might be thinking and not thinking in the midst of a moment as exciting as hitting your first home run. Well, we're going to spend two Sundays looking at Psalm 139, and today we're going to focus on the first 12 verses. And we're going to look at and consider how infinitely and intimately acquainted God is with us in all of our ways. And then in two weeks, we're going to look at how intricately God has created us and, and think through why that matters to our very being. And one of the challenges for us in knowing God and in growing to understand and trust God has to do with the fact that we tend to think of God in ways that are far too small. When the Scriptures instruct us in the matter of, the, of knowing the character of God, and you've already 
gathered some of that in, in the songs that we have sung this morning and in the, the catechism questions. Uh, the, the scriptures don't hide the fact that our finite minds and our sinful hearts are prone to thinking of God in such a way that is far less than God allows himself to be known. And so Psalm 139 is an antidote to that uh, small way of thinking. It's a meditation upon God's presence, upon God's knowledge, upon God's power. But this psalm illustrates God's attributes and character in a way that allows us to know God and to know that we are known by God. So I'm going to start uh, just as a review. We read the, the, the 12 verses. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Okay, so it would be very easy to conclude from the psalm that this is about God's omniscience, that he knows it all. And in one sense, that's very true. But notice the personal pronouns in these verses. When King David wrote this psalm, he's not merely making a reference to God as though God was impersonally uh, ubiquitous and innocuous. Uh, if if, if we, we, we run into trouble sometimes when we think of God as, as ubiquitous and innocuous. Yes, he's, he's ever-present, uh, but he's also personal. He's someone we can know, and yet his character attributes tell us that he's, he is holy as well. And David has a, a different motive for writing the, the 139th Psalm. Contextually, David is writing these words out of a desire to draw near to God, to know God, to worship God, and to help us to learn the same. And so if a person is not interested in drawing near to God, then they won't want to comprehend the greatness of God because facing the greatness of God can frankly be a fearful thing. There's a view, and it's, it's a shallow view, but there's a view that holds that God is love, and therefore we can approach him without needing to have any uh, sense of reverence or fear whatsoever. Now, we do know that God is love, and the scriptures tell us that, but God is also holy, and he's altogether righteous. And that aspect of God's character causes people to either flee from God, or if we do approach God, we have to humble ourselves and face our sinfulness in ways that we maybe don't like to face. Because it's a, it can be a fearful thing to draw near to God. So if you look at people from the Bible, you see this over and over again. Think about Adam and Eve hiding from God when he's calling to them in the garden. Where are you? Adam, where are you? Jacob wrestled with God in Genesis 32 and marveled later at the fact that his life had been spared because he had seen God face to face. Moses in Exodus 33 pleads with God to show him the glory of the Lord 
in all its fullness, and God had to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock lest he die from seeing a sight that he could not bear. And then there's Peter, who in realizing something of Jesus' identity as the Son of God, he pleads with Jesus and he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Well, God is calling us. Just as Jesus came near to Peter, God is calling us to come near to him. But when we, when we draw close to God, we, have to, we do have to approach God with a, a holy fear, a necessary fear, a healthy fear. But we do have our blind spots. And God is going to reveal things to us about ourselves that we may not want to face. Uh, in the very first year of my marriage, my wife and I went to Florida for a family wedding. And on the way driving to Florida, we began talking about, as newlyweds, about our uh, fledgling approach to handling finances. And we both were pretty good handling money before we got married. But once we got married, my wife thought that I was being a bit too frugal. And I objected, and I said, listen, I think I'm taking a bad rap in this area. I'm not nearly as thrifty as you say that I am. And to my wife's credit, she expressed a, an openness to seeing if time would bear that claim out. And so that same weekend, we paid a visit to a college buddy of mine uh, who uh, he had been in our wedding, I had been in his wedding. And this friend was also a hunting buddy with someone who um, was a very well-known Major League Baseball player. If I won't, respectfully, I won't mention his name, but if I did, most of you have heard of this gentleman. And as my friend was telling me about his ball player friend, the subject invariably came up about how much money a baseball player may make and how they might handle their finances. And at that moment, my friend... One of my closest friends, he looks at my wife and then he speaks of his ball player friend who was making millions of dollars a year. And he says, I'll tell you what, he doesn't spend any of his money. He's tighter than your husband. <laughs> and my wife, Lisa, looks at me with a raised eyebrow and a smile and says, Really? Now, was I serious when I said that I thought I was taking a bad rap for being called frugal? Yeah. Was I accurate in my self-assessment? Probably not. My friends and family would prove me wrong on that. And God has used my wife in the years since to help me to repent, so to speak, from that uh, aspect. But, but there are things that we hide in our hearts, and sometimes we just do not see ourselves or know ourselves as accurately as we might think we do. Well, what these verses in Psalm 139 are making clear to us is that we can hide our hearts, we can hide our past, we can hide our future plans from others, but we cannot hide anything from God. We can talk in a way that can even deceive those around us. We can even deceive ourselves, but nothing that we do or say is going to deceive God. And so that means that 
every moment of our lives is spent in the sight and the company of a creator who is not only omniscient, but he's intimately acquainted with us. And so we come to verse 5, which says, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So when David is writing this, he's saying that such knowledge is too wonderful for him. But others might not think it's so wonderful. In fact, these verses can be, frankly, terrifying if we really think about it. Think of the prophet Jonah. Jonah receives this uh, call from God to go to Nineveh, and which direction does he go? Whichever direction Nineveh is not. And so he set sail away from Nineveh, and that didn't really help much because God sent a storm that put the ship and all the men on the ship in peril. And seeing that this storm was sent uh, really for, for, from God, Jonah allowed himself to be thrown overboard for what he surely thought would be his last few moments alive until the great fish swallowed him. And it was in the belly of that fish that Jonah began to turn his heart to the Lord. In that moment, Jonah realized that he was hemmed in behind and before in the belly of that fish. And it wasn't so wonderful. It was terrifying. But at the same time, if you look at what is written in the book of Jonah about Jonah's experience there, Jonah realizes that his hope was in a God from whom he could not get away from. And that was strangely comforting. So the knowledge of God's hand upon us can in one sense be frightening, but David is very clear in saying that he saw real comfort in knowing that he was hemmed in before and behind and before. And those words can be comforting to us even in the midst of discomfort because sometimes God puts us in circumstances that we absolutely do not want to be in. A friend of mine was in a rather nightmarish situation in a the small town where he lives, his next-door neighbor had a dog that was large, aggressive, and not well-contained. And on three separate occasions, this dog had chased after my friend's young boys and bit them, and the third time left a uh, notable wound on one child. And meanwhile, the neighbor with the dog steadfastly refused to get rid of the dog, and my friend, who is in ministry and is seen by many as a visible Christian leader in his town. Uh, he was seeking to handle this problem in as honorable a way as he could. Uh, he approached his next-door neighbor numerous times to no avail. He approached his next-door neighbor's pastor to no avail. Uh, he even declined offers from friends to... Um, who expressed, these friends expressed interest in uh, inconspicuously terminating the dog. He declined that. He tried to be above board in every way, but eventually he had no choice but to get the police involved, and then it developed into a court case, and the neighbor eventually decided that rather than get rid of the dog, he would just move to 
some more secluded location. But for my friend, he received a stunning amount of criticism from Christian friends of his neighbor who suggested that my friend, by reporting the dog to the police, was using an unbiblical means to resolve a conflict between himself and another Christian. And all the while, as long as that dog was next door, his three young boys were at risk whenever they played outside. Now, if I could have presented my friend with a remote control device that had a button that he could push so as to just make this problem go away, would he push it? Yes. Any one of us would. But the thing is, we all go through situations like that where we encounter a difficult trial from which there is no easy escape. We're hemmed in before and behind. But think about it. Are we hemmed in by the circumstances or are we hemmed in by God? Now, I don't want to suggest that we should not do everything in our power to get ourselves out of a bad situation. Of course we should. But we also have to see our circumstances, both good and bad, easy and difficult, those circumstances are subordinate to a God who is sovereign over our lives, a God who is intent upon our well-being regardless of the evil intentions of others. You see, a major purpose of this psalm was to teach us how to approach our Creator. We have to understand who it is that we are approaching. Not only to honor God himself, but also so that we know why we should have any confidence in approaching God in the first place. And this is hardly a concept that we're, with which we're unfamiliar. Think about the Lord's Prayer. How much of the Lord's Prayer focuses upon who God is versus making a request for something from God. Half of the Lord's prayer is not really prayer request, but rather a prayerful focus upon who God is. And so as we focus on who God is, that's where we begin to have an accurate basis from which to worship God and trust God. And so as we focus upon who God is and what he has done for us, it is there that we begin to gain an accurate sense of confidence that we can approach God and petition him for anything that we need. Remember, remember, remember. You see this in the feasts that God commanded of the Israelites. Remember his faithfulness to them. One summer night, I was in a particularly difficult and discouraging place. Uh, I, I took a, a walk to pray, and I decided that even in the midst of my discouragement, before I even made one request of God, I was going to first think of ten reasons to be thankful to God and take time to give thanks to God before I asked for one request. And so over the next hour and over the three miles that I walked, I became so astounded and caught up in thanking God for his goodness in my life 
that I, I absolutely forgot about all the discouragement that had prompted me to pray in the first place. So by the time I got back home, I was overwhelmed with gratitude, and I really felt no need to ask God for anything because praying with gratitude over the previous hour had given me great reason to trust that God knew very well the matter over which I had been so discouraged. And he is, was going to help me through that crisis, and he did. In other words, knowing God in an intimate way is going to lead us to deepen our hope in God, both in this life and our hope even beyond the grave. Uh, this afternoon, I, I'm uh, doing a funeral for a church member of ours who has been ill for a long time, but I've got to tell you, the last two months, I've known this man for a long time, and he's not a woe-is-me kind of guy, but the last two months of his life have been the happiest months of his, th that I've known him. Uh, he had a strong hope in the Lord. He's telling a hospice worker about his faith in Jesus. I'm not sure she wanted to hear it, but he's going to tell her. Well, the Psalms speak of often of the fragility of life and of the fear of circumstances that might lead to death. And David's words in Psalm 139, particularly in verses six, 7 through 8, speak to a hope that is bigger than matters of life and death. Uh, so let's go to verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So again, we got to get beyond the idea that prayer is simply the act of making requests of God. That is important. We're encouraged to make requests of God, but prayer is much more than that. Prayer is a focus upon who God is, and as we come to know God more intimately, we will also have the confidence in God's character and heart to trust Him as we make requests of Him. Uh, a particularly treasured um, book in our home is this copy of the 18th century poem known as The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, uh, written by the English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Uh, my wife and I were in England a few years ago, and she found this book in a used bookstore in a town where Coleridge uh, spent some time. Uh, this book itself was printed in 1844, only nine years after Coleridge's death. Uh, and if you don't know about Samuel Taylor Coleridge, he struggled famously with a number of health issues throughout his life, including anxiety and depression, and later he developed an opium addiction. Uh, theologian Malcolm Guide explains that uh, the, mariner, the ancient mariner poem, which Coleridge actually wrote as a young man, would act, that poem would serve as a prescient foretelling of what was to come in Coleridge's life, because Coleridge abandoned his Christian faith, and then later, out of his torturous struggles, he sought God again and returned to the Lord and would go on to write some very compelling prayers 
that moved him from times when Coleridge felt as though his prayers could not be heard, and that tempted, tempted him toward despair. And then there were times when his prayers were clearly, obviously answered, and the presence of, of God was very clear. And, and as Malcolm Geit writes, he says, For Coleridge, as for the ancient mariner, prayer and vision went hand in hand, and the recovery of prayer in his life was not a matter of conventional piety, but of spiritual survival. In other words, for Coleridge, prayer itself became a matter of life and death because he realized in his desperation that he had to seek God uh, and that when he abandoned God, when he left God, when he abandoned his faith, there was hopelessness. And so he had to trust God regardless of whether his emotions and his feelings were in line with his words to God. There are going to be times, my friends, in our lives when for whatever reason, whether it makes sense or not, our prayers do not seem to go beyond the ceiling of the room in which we're praying. That's what Coleridge had to overcome. And what David is speaking to in these verses is that while we may well acknowledge our feelings and our fears, and, and that's healthy, those feelings and fears cannot be our compass when it comes to trusting God in difficult times. Uh, in difficult times, it may seem as if our prayers fall short of God's ears, but what David is explaining is that even if we try to run away from God, even there His hand is going to lead us. Even there His right hand is going to hold us. So we might feel as if God is distant, and we might wonder if He's forsaken us, but again, even there, David writes in verse 11, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the night about me be night. Even the darkness is not, a, not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. If our prayers seem as though we can't get past the ceiling, according to David, that's okay. God's still in the room with you. Underneath that ceiling. So even if we wanted to flee from God, we wouldn't be able to do so. so. Look, we know that God loves us as we are, and we know that God has shown us that love foremost through sending his son Jesus. But God also knows you as you are, and therefore he knows things about you that we ourselves, we don't want to see. And, and so I'll close with this. This is why, if you think about when Jesus said that Peter would deny him, Peter steadfastly argues against Jesus, saying he's going to die for Jesus. And all the disciples said the same thing. And then what happens? Well, we know that Peter did deny Jesus. And by the way, Peter gets a bad rap for that. Because yes, Peter denied Jesus, but again, all the other disciples were not brave enough to even put themselves in the position where someone might recognize them as being one of Jesus' disciples. Nine of the 11 remaining disciples went into hiding and, and, and just fled. 
So Peter was at least brave enough to put himself in a position where he would even be tempted to deny Jesus. But the crucified and risen Christ still loved his disciples even though they had done the last thing on earth that they thought they would ever do, even though they had done exactly what Jesus told them they would do. So when we draw near to God, and when God shows us our sin, even that is a gift of God's grace. Because that conviction of our sin points us all the more to our need for God's mercy, which Jesus has won for us on the cross. So conviction of sin even is a gift of God's grace. It's a call call to repentance, is an invitation to see the heart of God toward us and to see how God has called us and designed us and invited us to live in relationship with him. Think about that. Let me pray. Father in heaven, meet us where we are. Open our eyes to where we are blinded to what we do not want to see or cannot see. And help us to know your merciful heart. In the name of Christ, our Redeemer, we pray. Amen.